Hello and welcome along to the World Game Live. It's fantastic to have your company this Wednesday the 13th of January. Happy New Year to those that may just be joining us for the first time since we've ticked over to 2021. Stolich, my co-host, coming to us live from SBS HQ. I have to ask you first and foremost, before I get to how you are, how long can you continue to say Happy New Year to people before that wears off? Well, someone said it to me yesterday and I was a bit like, oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah, you, you too, I guess. So uh, <laughs> I'm not saying it at all to anyone anymore. I mean, but I think after the night after, I'm too usually hung over the next day to say it even the next day. So I think, uh, you know, it's I think it's not appropriate more than 48 hours afterwards. <laughs> 48 hours afterwards. Well, I feel like, you know what, I feel like before we get into the Jam Pack show that we've got in store for everybody, I feel like if you are seeing that person for the first time in that new year, I think you still get permission to say Happy New Year. Right, Let, so you're going to say it to every single guest that we have on the show today? <laughs> Maybe I will. I'll tell everybody. Yeah, happy it's going to not be today's show, Luke. Come on. <laughs> it is our show, but of course, we enjoy going well over time, much to our uh, producer's dismay. <laughs> but I want to, of course, make a special welcome to all of the guests tuning in today. It's always fabulous to have your company, our regular viewers. Fantastic to see you. Make sure you get your questions and your comments in. Of course, it's been a big week in Australian football. We have a hell of a lot going on at the moment. Um, later on, we will be catching up with Craig Foster to uh, reflect on the memory and the very sad passing of Frank Arrock and a, a, you know, an Australian legend, not only as a Socceroos coach, but as a man as well. Everyone that you speak to had nothing but glorious things to say about Frank Arrock. So stick around when we catch up with Foz a little bit later on. Shortly, we will be catching up with Football Australia Chief Executive Officer James Johnson. And then after that, PFA Co-Chief Executive Bo Bush to talk about the latest news that a white paper has been developed on the Australian domestic transfer system. So big news. It is happening. We are very excited for what's in store for 2021. And later on in the program, of course, we will be catching up with a delightful goal-scoring machine, an absolute sensation for Melbourne Victory since she has come back to Australia. Lisa Devana, always got so much time for Lisa Devana. She's great talent, a great human being and a great footballer. If you haven't seen that goal that she scored in the Melbourne Derby, well, we'll be playing it when we catch up with her later, but shame on you where the bloody hell have you been because that goal is one for the ages. All right, Stolich, we do have a big show, so I want to start first and foremost with the news now and making headlines. Phoenix's Rufa receives a one-match ban after a controversial red card was issued. The question that we're asking, and it seems like a very redundant and obvious one, is did they get it wrong? Stolich, I know your answer, but I'd love to know from anybody else is if they got it right. Did anybody look at that incident and deem the situation to be worthy of a red card? Tune in, write your comments and get your questions in about that one. I'd love to know. But Stolich, what was your initial reaction to it? Well, my initial reaction was I had no problem with them initially checking it because I do think sometimes these things happen. You know, we've, we've all played the game. You get kicked. Sometimes, you know, you retaliate quickly. But when I looked at it kind of, you know, in slow motion, I think sometimes these things shouldn't – I think they should almost be played normal speed sometimes to get a sense of how quick it was. He was kind of turning so quickly. His eyes were closed. It looked like he was almost trying to extend his legs for balance. I didn't think he was – you know, I ne you never know someone's true intentions, but – if he was trying to kick out um, at uh, Genro, uh, I think he has very fast reflexes and that's very impressive from Alex Rufert. But no, I don't think um, he was looking to kick out. And, you know, I, I believe uh, the Wellington Phoenix CEO came out and said that he spoke to the officials and they did admit that they got it wrong. Um, but due to the regulations, they're unable to rescind the red card. So it's going to be the minimum one match ban. Listen, it's not an ideal situation, but, uh, you know, I... I don't think it's the end of the world for the Phoenix. Um, it's unfortunate for Rufa.
It's not the end of the world. It certainly isn't by any stretch of the imagination, of course. And according to the regulations, the reason why they weren't able to fully retract it was because he'd already been issued a yellow card. So that's where it starts to get messy. Uh, one of our journalists actually uh, put up a, a piece on the whole situation. If you haven't seen it already, it's on the World Game website. Dave Lewis penned it. And it talks about whether or not the match review panel actually have any legitimate power in this situation. And I tend to agree with that because I feel like in this scenario, they were able to reduce it from violent conduct to less serious charges and then knock it back to just one game, uh, a one game suspension. But beyond that, I think, you know, we need our match review panel to have more grit um, and more bite and more say in these types of scenarios. And again, like I said, I know the regulations make it quite tricky, but in a situation like this, and I'm not saying that the referees have to be punished, but the referees have to know when you are in a situation like that, and now you have the added benefit of VAR, if you're still making mistakes like this, it is going to be a scourge on the game. It is going to shape the narrative out of of that game out of that round and potentially out of that month and you don't want that to happen we we feel like we want to keep progressing in Australian football and not going backwards and situations like this take us there so it is tricky I, I definitely felt for the Phoenix in that scenario but um when we get some time later on we'll be giving you a bit of an A-League wrap on how we've seen things it's been of course very challenging Stolich that we haven't had many games being played out because they've been postponed no thanks to the hideous COVID-19 pandemic but I want to move on now and welcome our next special guest of course it's been a challenging 2020 period and I'm sure he and the rest of the Football Australia organisation, along with the community, will be hoping for a much better 2021. It's time now to welcome Football Australia CEO James Johnson to the show. James, thank you so much for making the time to join us. We know that you are a very busy man. I said it there, 2020 was a tough period, of course, for you, a baptism by fire uh, in many respects. But can you tell us, before we get into the discussion around the white paper that's been developed on the domestic transfer system, just how have you reflected on the year that was and have you had a chance to actually actually catch your breath because it's been bloody crazy. Thanks, Lucy, and thanks, Nick, and Happy New Year to you both. <laughs> I didn't hear that earlier. <laughs> um, look, it, the year 2020, it was, it was, it was challenging. It was a, and, and I don't want to complain because there's people in far worse situations than, than, than I'm in, than you're in, than the football community here in Australia is in around the world. But for the game, it was challenging. Um, if we remember the start of the year, we're actually dealing with bushfires. So that was that was something that was was really crippling, I think, for the sport. And then we had COVID that came soon after. Um, so it was it was challenging. I've been in the football administration now for, for many, many years, and I've really never seen anything quite like this. Um, I think what we did early on in the piece, if we go back to March, April, is is we tried to look at how we can find opportunities in the challenging times. That's that's something we tried to do strategically. And I think despite the challenges, I think we got quite a few good runs on the board in 2020. We, we went through a consultation process with the football community on the document that we now call the um, 11 principles, which is a 15-year vision for, for the game. I think I actually started talking about that here on, on, on the show with yourself, Lucy, and also Foltz. Mm -hmm. um, early on. Um, we went hard. We were fortunate to get the hosting rights for the 23 Women's World Cup. That was another um, a big ticket item. Um, we went through an organisational review. There were a lot of changes internally. We changed um, our name. We relaunched and revamped the FFA Cup. And on the last day of the year, we were, hope we were lucky and we we're fortunate to finally formally unbundled, which has been on the cards for some years now. So it was a big year, um, I think, for the game. It was challenging, but I think we got a lot done 
in the year 2020 and we're very excited um, for the start of the year uh, 2021. Before I throw over to Stolich for some questions for you, of course, as you said there, it has been a massive year, but the unbundling in particular was something that you said, uh, you know, you aptly put it there that it's been coming for many years now. How relieved are you also personally and professionally and, and looking at it from the organisation's view to, to finally have that settled and to be able to move on and focus on other business? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy, Lucy. I've been through a few of these in, in other parts of the world, but they're very complex. Um I think the model that we've landed on is is really unique because it's not one that is is, is a cut and paste from from another country. So what what we have here is we have um, the APL now that are really going to wake up every day thinking about the commercial side of the league. They're going to think about the operations of the league, um, and that's all they're going to think about. They're not going to have to think about other areas of the game. Well, we're going to wake up every day, and of course think about national teams, pathways, the base, grassroots how we bring it all together, and then as far as the professional game is concerned, how we actually regulate it. And I think that that's a good governance principle that many leagues around the world don't have, where you'll separate your commercial interests, which is the APL, from the regulator. And I think that that's something that um, other leagues around the world could, could possibly learn from in the future. Mm, a comment coming through from one of our regular viewers, Ivan Stragan. Ivan, great to have your company, mate. Thanks so much for tuning into the World Game Live. Welcome, James. So far, so good from James in challenging times. We've seen some progression. And um, Stolich, I'm sure progression is exactly where we'd like to go in this discussion because it concerns the, the Australian domestic transfer system so far away. Yeah, so James, what I kind of wanted to know was what does a successful domestic transfer system look like in the first 12 months and then maybe in, in the next kind of five, 10 years? Because what what are we going to see? Because it's going to be a new thing, obviously, for the A-League. So what do you think it looks like in its initial instance and then the long-term success? I think, uh, look, when we talk about KPIs around the transfer system, it, the way I see it is always an economical and sporting benefit. Um, I think if we start on the sporting benefits, um, we, we won't see um, Australian football developing top global players um, in the first year. This is something that will take time. Um, but I think what we'll see from a sporting perspective once we introduce a transfer system is clubs will start to change their mentality because at the moment what's happening throughout the pyramid, and I'm not just talking about the A-League, I'm talking about clubs in the NPL and even grassroots clubs, is they don't have a system which means they can produce players and they can invest in developing players, but then they can literally see them go and they don't receive anything in return. So if there is a return on their investment, what it should do in theory is it should incentivize clubs to invest more in their scouting systems, to invest more in, in technical um, or TDs, uh, invest in youth development programs. And we think that's gonna be helpful uh, in the long term from a sporting perspective. Um, on the economical side, it's about creating um, what in, in, in Europe and global football, we, we, the term we use is, is contractual stability, which is good for the player and the club because the longer uh, a player is on contract with a club, it gives the player more security because at the moment we have this issue with players um, only having one to two year contracts and that's not good for the player because there's no security and it's not good for the club because it means that um, there's no value in holding the registration of the player. So the more contractual stability that we can create through a transfer system will mean that players are contracted to clubs for longer periods 
and the more contractual stability we can create, we think can unlock um, over time some of the revenues in the international uh, transfer system market, which at the moment is, is is a number of seven billion dollars. So that's where we see the the, the improvements. Um, I think through introducing a transfer system. And it's quite scary when you consider, I mean, last year, Australia was ranked just eighth in Asia um, and in terms of the, the transfer revenue received, and that was also behind Iraq and the UAE. But Australian clubs, James, they just collected US 1.9 million, which translates to 2.69 million in international transfer fees uh, last year and beyond. Um, I want to ask you, though, because um, there was an article that came out in September 2020 last year with Don Bossi, where I think there was this assertion potentially that you wanted to try and match Japan's transfer revenue, which could be in that $40 million vicinity. What's a realistic kind of um, financial target for you from your perspective in the short term and then potentially the long term of how much revenue you could attract and inject into the ecosystem here in Australia? Yeah, very good question. And it's one we could write a PhD on, Lucy. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's a great question. But if you look at, um, if we go back to facts and figures, um, if you look at the transfer receipts in for a country, which we're talking about, we got 1.9 in 2019 uh, into Australia for transfers out of Australia. If you compare that to um, the FIFA rankings for national teams, there's usually a relationship. So if you're, you know, if you're number, um, if you're a top 10 nation, right, you're an Uruguay or Belgium um, or a Croatia in your FIFA rankings, usually you're transfer receipts in is high as well mm -hmm. so what a country like japan has is is their transfer receipts in which are around the 30 million us dollar mark um are probably about right for where they sit in the fifa rankings right um we have this situation where our rankings are usually because it changes every year usually around the likes of japan we're usually higher than countries like scotland we're usually higher than countries like Canada. Um, we're usually around about where South Korea are in terms of our FIFA rankings. But then when you look at the amount of transfer receipts in, we're very, very low because all the countries I just mentioned are around the 30 million US dollar mark in 2019. So I think that's a benchmark for us. Um, but these are countries that have had, um, uh, I think, better aligned throughout the domestic period uh, pyramid transfer systems in place for some time now so it will take time but i think that's the that's the benchmark that's the number that i think we can get into um, once we've set up a transfer system and it's operating um, in an efficient way here's the question that's on everybody's lips via one of our viewers here matthew m papas most important question when will the domestic transfer system be implemented next month end of year next year i know that from the white paper you mentioned 2021 james but um you know further to, to matthew's question when are you looking roughly at implementing it so so the process is it's, it's already started um we if we go back to the middle part of 2020 um the starting 11 discussed a transfer system and they recommended to the FA board that we adopt one. We included it in the uh, the 11 principles document. Um, and then in the back end of the year, we started to prepare the white paper. And in parallel, um, we, we, we held a webinar series with, with different experts from different parts of the world um, talking about what a transfer system looks like. So that that part of the process and the release of the white paper is, is done. 
but but now what we need to do as a next step is we need to go out and speak to our um, our stakeholders. The, the stakeholders that are key in a in a transfer system discussion are always the player and the club. So we really need to hear from them. So obviously the PFA is going to be key in this process, um, as are the A-League clubs, W-League clubs, the NPL clubs. But we even need to hear from the grassroots clubs. So there will be a, a consultation process that we go through. Um, and it'll be meaningful um, because the transfer system means a lot to the players, to the PFA, it means a lot to the club. So I want to make sure we get that process right to be fair to our stakeholders so we don't rush things um, because there are some really sensitive points within a transfer system discussion. So I think in Q1, our focus will be on the consultation process. Um, hopefully, after the consultation process, we can move beyond the white paper. We can put a set of rules down for another discussion, um, another um, hard uh, consultation, possibly in some cases negotiation. And then once we put the draft rules out, we then adopt them and they would come into the next seasons, depending on the competition thereafter. So I think concretely, I would say Q1 consultation process and then Q2, we look at going into a more direct, these are the rules, what do you think about them? And then thereafter, we, we, we look at implementing it. Mm. Stolich, final question for James before we say goodbye. Yeah, James, I just wanted to ask, with, um, you know, transfer systems abroad, um, a lot of times it's those smaller clubs, sometimes in second divisions, that benefit from a domestic transfer system. You know, you look at kind of Portugal, I say, for example, uh, Porto, Benfica, Sporting, always buy it from sometimes those lower clubs. Would this system help fast track implement, create a potential second division or at least help those state league clubs even if they're not in a second division generate more money that they possibly need for a potential second division in the future yeah 100 percent. i think um with transfer system there's a benefit for um for different clubs at different levels so if you're a club at the top level let's say you're sydney or or, or um, melbourne or, or brisbane um the benefit is you're going to get better players right and Ultimately, in a, in a country like Australia, we're never going to be a buying player in the market, internationally speaking, but we can be a selling nation like the Belgians or the Croatians or, or Uruguays. This, this is a possibility for us. So there'll be benefit in that it will help increase for the big clubs um, their competitiveness because they're going to have better players, better product over time, and then there's economic uh, benefits when, when they sell the player internationally. But as you said, there, there definitely is benefits for the smaller clubs because the players will move up the pyramid and revenues will go down once we get the system in place. And I think that's really important um, for clubs outside of the A-League because at the moment um, we've got this issue where there's, there's no promotion relegation in our code outside the A-League. Um, there's been no transfer system um, in Australian football for many years. Um, we've tried to rectify the, the – some to some extent in the FFA Cup by making it more open um, in terms of the draw and then obviously giving clubs access now to the Champions League so clubs can move up, if you like, through that competition structure. Um, but we want to give the clubs outside the A-League more um, incentive. And, and this is a good incentive because if you're going to go out and develop players under this system, you will be rewarded.
James Johnson, thank you so much for making the time to chat to us today. Of course, it's a hot topic in Australian football at the moment, this domestic transfer system. We wish you all the very best. We know it's still in its infancy stages, but this is something I think we can all agree will greatly benefit the Australian football economy going forward. Just how that gets done is all up to you guys, so I certainly don't envy you, but thank you again for making the time. We wish you all the very best. We hope that 2021 is much kinder to you and everyone across Australian football. Thank you, mate. Thanks, Luce. Delighted to be on the show. Thanks also, Nick. Cheers. Thanks, James. Great to have James's company there. And, of course, we'll move on very swiftly, uh, Stolich, and uh, keep in theme with this discussion because, of course, one party that will be very interested in how this conversation plays out and how, of course, it affects the players more specifically will be the PFA. And we're delighted that uh, PFA co-chief CEO Bo Bush could be here with us today. Bo, fantastic to see you, mate. I had this gag at the top of the show where I said, at what point do you stop wishing people a happy new year? And I want to know, is it too late to wish you a happy new year on the 13th? of Jan? No, I think so, Lucy. I've, I've uh, managed to just emerge from home isolation yesterday. I went back to Newcastle for Thanks. Christmas and then came back to Victoria. So I feel very much like this is the start of the new year for me. I didn't want to start the new year. And I think certainly my children stuck in the house with me for 11 days. They're probably happy <laughs> to hit the reset button, I think, Lucy, and uh, be able to restart the new year, I think, in uh, in better terms. So I'm happy to uh, start the year from now, if that's okay with you guys. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sorry to hear also that you were stuck in a house full of children that would have been scratching at the walls as well as a parent myself. <laughs> I can only imagine what that must have been like, Bo. Um, but it's great to see you, mate. I know that, um, as I said, we just uh, had the, the the company of James Johnson, Football Australia CEO, with us there, and he reflected earlier on in our discussion about how challenging 2020 was, and we're of course hoping for a, you know a brighter future and a brighter horizon now going into 2021. Although it seems as though COVID 19 is here to stay. Um, but one thing though that I'd love to get you to reflect on is just where we're at now um, from a player's perspective. Um, one thing we haven't had the chance to kind of solidify in stone yet has been about the collective bargaining agreement i'd love to know before we talk about the domestic transfer system sort of where that's at from your perspective yeah no lucy i think in terms of the two collective bargaining agreements or the collective agreements rather for the a league and wd they are uh, agreed in principle we're working through the documentation um with fa and also with the a league clubs now having taken control of the league and i think the hold up on the documentation is just purely being the unbundling so for all intensive purposes the negotiation is done those matters are settled um it's just a matter of formalizing the contract now so we're happy of where that's at um and we're in a really good position now for the season Oh, fantastic to hear. And, of course, when we can get more games of that season rolling, it'll be even better. Please, we've had enough of you coronavirus. Leave us be. Um, but I want to move on to the domestic transfer system. Of course, we just heard from James Johnson there. I mean, I know it's still quite difficult to get a sense of exactly where it's at because, as I said earlier, it's in its infancy stages. But they have produced a white paper. They are starting to consult people. One party that James Johnson said would be a very important player in this is the PFA. So from your perspective and Kate's, of course, and, and the entire PFA sort of family what's your view on on you know how this can be introduced and just how it's going to either benefit or potentially maybe even hinder the australian football economy 
Yeah, no, thank you, Lucy. It's a really good question, I guess, to start start this discussion. And I think what it sort of uh, symbolises at the moment is that we are at this strategic sort of crossroad where the leagues have now unbundled and we need to really work through what the identity is of our professional leagues. And I think as part of that, there's a range of important strategic questions and the transfer system is part of that as a really important labour market regulation. But as to is the season window um, and the pure sort of identity of our leagues and the, and the objectives of it. So I think excuse me our concern really is with this and what we'd like to work through is that it is a negotiated matter as James pointed out earlier when he was on that we do work through that if the players are to be subject to this and it is to have an impact on their careers then we really uh, our strong belief is that it needs to be negotiated and agreed with the players so that's sort of the starting point I think the secondary point to that is that it is not compatible with the salary cap and I think we've just recently done the numbers at the moment, there's about 70% of A-League players are coming off contract this year. And when we look at the age ranges between sort of 19 and 23 of these players that you would imagine that we would want to be on long-term contracts to build value in our playing squads, this year we're seeing about 72 to 73% of those players coming off contract. So what we're seeing is this extreme volatility that continues to be driven by the A-League salary cap. So it's really important that we address that first and we work through that because if we're trying to build a model that allows for us to build value in players, when we've got that extreme short-term contracting, it's not going to allow us to do so. And I think the introduction of loans in the A-League has really proved that. You know, in 2018, loans came in. And now when we sit here in 2021, we've had three loans over the course of that time. And that's primarily been driven by the fact that most players, in the majority anyway, are coming off contract at the end of the year in the A-League. And when we look at the W-League, it's almost 100% of players are contracted from year mm -hmm. to year. So until we address those contracting practices, which we have said for a really long time now, is driven by the salary cap, is having a huge amount of adverse impact on players and also on clubs as well too because they can't build value in their playing squads. So I think if we're trying to work through even the most sophisticated best placed policy but we're doing it with the salary cap as well too, well that's really going to unwind any of those benefits that we're seeking through a domestic transfer system. Mm, really well said, Bo. Before I throw over to Stolich for a question, I mean, we, we keep talking about so many issues that we've identified in Australian football that need significant work, but just listening to you speak about it in that respect, I mean, it seems as though the salary cap seems to be a real sticking point and, um, and it's linked to a host of other potential issues in the game as well. Yeah, I think absolutely. You know, a very brief history of the salary cap was that it was put in place at the start of the A-League and that was done because we needed to encourage investment into the league and people really didn't know how much it cost to run a professional football club in this country um, to that level in the new era rather. Um, and I think that sort of has occurred and we've moved past that point now. And then over the course of the salary cap's operation, we've tried to bargain different aspects of it to improve these negative consequences from homegrown allowance to loyalty player payments and all these sort of things have been done in good faith. Unfortunately, they haven't been able to address that core issue of short-term contracting. And what we know from our research is it adversely impacts the players. It also turns off fans. Um, and really disappointingly, it has prevented clubs from building value in their playing squads and accessing what James pointed out earlier is the increase in transfer revenues around the world. And Australia's really been left behind uh, because of, as I said, the impact of the salary cap. Mm. Stolich, over to you. Yeah, Bo, I wanted to ask, and someone's brought it up here, Adam Howard uh, on Facebook. He's saying uh, need to get rid of the salary floor too. Let's not forget the floor. How do you respond to that concept? Because, of course, we have the salary cap, but to the salary floor, for people who don't know, is I guess, well, maybe you can explain what that is. Yep. Yeah, of course. The salary cap 
Um, there's obviously a lot of the focus is always on the limit the clubs are able to spend. But what we've been able to do is build in a floor as well too, which is the minimum spend on the playing squad. I don't follow the logic, to be honest, Nick, that if you need to get rid of one, you need to get rid of the, the other. Um, I don't think it works that way, and we're certainly not looking to go into any negotiations with the clubs in a horse trading sort of type way. But I think the importance of the floor has really been about getting clubs to a level where they can compete. And also importantly, making sure that clubs are investing in their playing squad. What we know is that for the A-League to be successful, we need 12 strong teams. And for the W-League to be successful, we need nine. So the floor has been historically really important in getting clubs to a point where they can compete and they are successful. And I think going forward, whatever model we're looking at, the minimum spend is going to be really important, whether that's the minimum wage and where we get that to a level where we can attract and retain talent or getting all clubs to a position where they can compete because we know that competitive balance matters in this league. And um, one final question from me, Bo, from your perspective, I mean, we asked the, the question of James Johnson of when we could realistically see the domestic transfer system introduced in the country. But what is from, you know, the, the players union's perspective, the belief in, in when this could be introduced and just um, and, and how successful it could potentially be in the long term? Yeah, no, Lucy, I think with that, we're at an opportunity now where we have six months remaining on the current collective agreements. So there's an opportune time where we will be entering negotiations again. We've also seen the unbundling of the leagues as well too. So those negotiations do take on a bit of a different dynamic now. So I think as we look at sort of these important labour market regulations, they are matters that will come up in the CBA negotiations. So with that, with a view to looking at what the new world looks like as of July, I think, Lucy, and, and the domestic transfer system will be a really important part of those discussions with both the clubs and with Football Australia as well. well it certainly will. Bo Bush, always a pleasure to see you. Great to catch up with you and thank you so much for your valuable insights. Um, I think it's, again, as I said to James earlier, it's such a hot topic in Australian football. We know there are so many changes that we want to see implemented, but they have to be implemented right in order for things to be successful going forward. So take care. We're glad that you're back and Absolutely. safe after a period of isolation and we'll catch up with you again soon, mate. No problem. Thanks, guys. Take care. Yes, always great to see Bo Bush there, um, a very valuable member and contributor in Australian football now. Of course, a former footballer himself. It's great to see him at the helm of the PFA alongside the legendary Kate Gill. Okay, I want to move on to the next headline, of course, and this one, it was really tragic to see this um, this pop up because, um, you know, he's somebody, Frank Arrock, of course, Stolich, as you would know, that touched the hearts of so many. You speak to many of the former players that worked under him. They all have wonderful things to say. I put out a tweet earlier saying, I never, unfortunately, had the benefit and the pleasure of being able to meet Frank, but Everyone that I had spoken to just had glorious things to say about him. As I said, the players um, that worked under him, the tributes have been flowing endlessly. We're going to catch up with Foz in just a moment, but from your perspective, how did you react to the news? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, he was before my time. You know, he he coached the Socceroos obviously in the 80s before I was born. Um, he was in the NSL in the 90s, kind of before I was fully following it. But, uh, you know, I just took the time yesterday to read a lot of the tributes from either players that played under him or journalists that had covered him or just fans of the Socceroos uh, who, had, who had supported the Socceroos at that time. And, and what came across was how much, you know, Frank clearly cared about the game, clearly cared about the Socceroos, his passion uh, for the team and his desire to move it forward and how unlucky he was actually not to reach the World Cup in 1986. And it would have been amazing for Australia to go to uh, Mexico 86. But um, as one person pointed out on Twitter, we were very close. I think we played a game in Scotland, in um, Melbourne. The plan was actually to – Frank wanted to move the game to Darwin where the Scottish players couldn't handle the heat. Seems very <laughs> smart to me. 
unfortunately <laughs> at the time you know how things change how things don't um the federation didn't have the money so they needed a big gate that they thought they were going to get in melbourne so they decided to put it there and uh, unfortunately we missed out and you know then we had that long 32 year wait but we were very close and it, and from from all reports it sounds like you know frank was a really good coach and someone who probably deserved a bit more support at the time and, and could have done amazing things and could have been an even greater legend uh, had he had that. Well, he certainly deserves the tributes. And here to, to reflect on some of those and the career that was for uh, Frank Arrock is the legendary Craig Foster, colleague, my beloved colleague, fabulous to see you, of course. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you, my friend. Um, but tell us first and foremost how you reacted to the very sad news that Frank Arrock passed away in Serbia at uh, age 88. Yeah, it's lovely to, to see you too and Happy New Year. Um, it's sad news for a number of reasons, but he is a giant of Australian football history, uh, no question. Uh, he made a very significant contribution at both club and national team level. I think he uh, also stands among all of the soccer coaches throughout all of the different eras uh, as uh, something of an inflection point. He brought a, a point of difference to the national team and I was just a kid at that time coming into the NSL actually mm -hmm. uh, when he came for his second stint in Australian football and in 83 of course took the team over. Um, and so I, I remember it very well. Um, but it's sad firstly for the reason that for all of us uh, I think perhaps older but any fans of Australian football uh, who are nostalgic, uh, you know, it's another one of this you know, really beautiful era of the game who we've lost. Uh, and, you know, and I think that generates each time even more sadness um, mm. because this was in many ways uh, a golden era. Um, you know, it was still semi-professional uh, period of Australian football in that mid-80s. And it was our first generation of players who moved on mass as a group across to Europe successfully. You know, prior to that, of course, we had great pioneers. I mean, Joe Marston was, you know, extraordinary back in the 50s playing mm -hmm. in the Cup final. But then you had, you know, kind of Krenchevik, who was a little bit ahead of that. And you had, of course, the great Craig Johnston. But then all of a sudden, out of this era, which Frank oversaw, you had, you know, so many of them. Um, you had, you know, David Mitchell and Frank Farina and Robbie Slater and Graham Arnold and, you know, just great, great names of the game. It was a very important era uh, in our whole history. So he was uh, a real gentleman, but he was an incredibly fierce competitor um, and, uh, and clearly was, was loved by his players and rightly loved by the fans. He's remembered very fondly and not all coaches and certainly not all national coaches are with the great love and fondness that Frank Arup is remembered. Um, and I think what you've uh, touched on, you know, in the fan comments is right, is that he came here and he demonstrated a genuine, not just passion, but something that in Australian football, we perhaps have many times have been lacking and, and therefore we really resonate when we see it to, uh, a real belief. He had a real belief in the game. Uh, he had a belief in what the national team could achieve. Uh, and I think he changed the mentality of the team in some ways. And I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. But as I spoke to a number, I didn't play under him. I, I, I mean, my own personal experience, I knew him quite well. We had uh, many discussions over many years, including when I was a player and uh, later at SBS, because he was very close with Les and Johnny. 
Uh, and so, you know, I had the opportunity many times to catch up when he was back in Australia. But um, even as a young player, uh, when I was 15, uh, he asked me down from the country to come to St George. And this was, you know, when, when uh, you know, it was a great, great era. Scotty Ollerenshaw and, you know, Robbie Slater and now Shays and Radcliffe mm -hmm. and uh, there's Marton was there and all these players. And I went down and trained with the team. Subsequently, ended up going to the AS. But I saw, um, to some degree, the way he worked. And later on, when I was a kid at Sydney Croatia, um, and uh, I remember the 88 uh, Olympic squad and the way that he prepared them. And that stands out in my mind. Perhaps the two moments in, in his contribution to Socceroos was what he did with that 88 team. You had the 88 game, perhaps three, the game against Argentina, 4-1, you know, that most, one of the most yeah. famous games in our entire football history. Uh, mm -hmm. and, he, and he rightly presided over that. And uh, thirdly was uh, what uh, Nicky was talking about was this game against Scotland. I watched it. There was a fantastic team in many ways that we had at that time. But it's a moment in Australian football history that I often comment on and think back to because of what Nick mentioned. It kind of sums up our game in a lot of ways. He was uh, a, a football man successful coach who had the ball in his blood, you know, right down to his DNA. And then you had the administration of the game who uh, made the opposite decision to what he wanted as the coach, which was perfectly sane and uh, strategically quite brilliant. Mm -hmm. And Les and Johnny used to talk about that moment a lot as kind of just really paraphrasing the game, sadly, in some ways is that, you know, they're, they're, the games had moments to make big leaps and administrators who, you know, lack the, the, the you know, there was a division between on-field and, and uh, people with decades of knowledge and experience and those running the game. They're, that's always existed, um, in, you know, in, in varying degrees, but that's been part of our history. And, uh, and that was emblematic of, uh, you know, many of the decisions that have been made all down through the years. And you're right. Um, and, and Les used to talk about that, how he decided that he wanted to play up in Darwin in the middle of the afternoon in the cycling heat. And there's no, <laughs> and that's obvious that, 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 you know, that's, an, it's, well, actually it's not obvious, but it's obviously great thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, but the game, uh, typically said, well, no, you know, it's a, it's a big event for us and if this comes down to this concept of belief as well. Well, if we go up there, we get no crowd, we get no money and we don't qualify, if we don't get through now, then it's a complete waste. Whereas what Arok's saying is let's do what we need to do to get to the World Cup. This is about football here, okay? And, of course, history would say that, you know, was the money more important? Well, look where we ended up. You know, only 15 years later, we were bankrupt as a game. It's true. So, so it's a really important, and that I think sums up Frank in a lot of ways as a as an innovator, a real thinker. He had an immense vision. He was successful with senior players, but he also was very devoted to academies. He was very devoted to uh, uh, building the next generation, uh, and he brought a number of those through at the various clubs. Uh, that he coached, and he also then later went to consult on academies at, at you know various NSL clubs later in his uh, period of time here in Australia. So I think we can look broadly at three kind of types.
types of soccer coaches. You had the ones who came in specifically to coach national teams, you know, and Gudendorf and the likes, um, and we've had quite a few. You had the ones who came here to coach or play, but then coached successfully in the domestic game and went on to coach the Socceroos. Frank was one of those. Eddie Thompson was another one of those, and there's been quite a few. Uh, and then uh, thirdly, you have, of course, the homegrown. Uh, and we're in a new era of that now, um, you know, for a number of reasons. So he was um, one of, if, if perhaps the most successful of the, the second type, who he knew the Australian player, he knew the domestic scene. If you look at the teams that he was able to utilise, they were very largely home-based. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was the next era when you're a different kind of, player was, you know, started to come through, you know, in that great Barcelona Olympics team, you know, in the early 90s and so on and come through yeah, to, yeah. to when we were able to then to start to change the football. When you when you talk about uh, him as a coach, uh, two things stand out. Number one is that he was a hard bugger. Okay. So now I don't know if he came here like that or if he just adapted to, to what he saw. Um, I think it's probably a bit of both but certainly a lot of the former, because in that uh, second era that he had uh, with St George in the NSL, that was a very, very, very hard team. <laughs> yeah. Okay? yeah. And, you know, he, so he was clearly a great manager of men um, and he was, many of the players today say to me, he's a fantastic motivator. He was eccentric in a lot of ways. Um and he, uh, but he was very hard uh, and his football was incredibly hard. So the players have told stories over many years about the famous cage at St George Stadium. Okay, so in that, in that era, there was a actual cage, a wire cage with a small pitch on it, probably around the size of a futsal field um, at the back of St George Stadium where the team trained. And he would send... Uh, 16 players in there, eight against eight, and they would just go at it, right? They, they would, and it was hard. And so he was, a, he was a trainer of mentality. You know, it was about this competitive nature. And he translated that across to the Socceroos because what he did in 1988 was he, decided, he used to call the team the Mad Dogs. Mm -hmm. okay? Players talk about it a lot. And so... He didn't say that Australia was going to go and, and necessarily outplay everyone. What he said was, we are going to use this famous Australian mentality, which he respected, this fighting spirit, which he'd embedded at St George uh, and which he believed in. And he wanted to be the fittest team at that Olympics and the most competitive. So he used to talk to the team about, you know, we are the mad dogs. Mm. And that's, so that was his contribution. But it was a sense of belief, he instilled belief in the players that we are the fittest, most competitive, and we can take on anyone. It was, I think, quite a deal later, and perhaps we're still, uh, you know, we're still developing into the time when we can say we can take on everyone and ally that to beating anyone, you know, with football. Uh, but so he understood the era well and I think also the players that he had. And so what he did was he split. I remember I was at Cine Croatia. I was only 17 years old. And um, 
I remember the players, Arnie and all of these guys used to go off, Alan Hunter and, uh, uh, you know, Bulldog Slater and Wally Savore and Flash Jennings. There was a lot in that team. And they used to go off, whatever it was, once a week or once every couple of weeks to train at St George Stadium. So he split the national team, even though they had no games, he split them into Sydney-based and Melbourne-based. Okay, so a different model. And all he did was he ran them. And I remember them, and I went and watched a couple of times as a kid, and they were running 400 metres. And so he was timing them. And so, you know, he, he, this is going back to, you know, the, the kind of later 80s. And what he wanted was he, he went over months and months and months and months and months, bare, barely touching a football. So he wasn't preparing them so much tactically. He wanted them to be the fittest team at the tournament. Okay, so if you can imagine, you know, that was a part of what he brought to them. And so when you're playing Argentina and, you know, you, you, you know few people think that you can win 4-1, the great credit to Frank Arrock is that he could prepare the team to, to uh, be capable but also to actually believe that they could beat Argentina 4-1 at that time. That, I think, is in the pantheon of all Socceroo history, that I think is his biggest contribution. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Well, and nobody, nobody, nobody thank you so much for your company today and for tuning in and joining us. Um, as we remember the great Frank Arrock there, a legend, of course, in so many ways in Australian football. He certainly won't be forgotten. And one thing that I, I did kind of take some comfort in, Foz, and I, and I smiled at, was that he joined so many of our beloved icons up there in the football field in the sky. And I know that he, Les and Johnny, and so many of them would be getting together and having a vino relaxo. Foz, always great to see you. Thank you for joining us, albeit under sad circumstances. Oh. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. They'd be they'd be loving it. They'd be loving it. Oh, we love yeah. having your company, mate. Thank you so oh, much. Yeah, Take care of yourself, and we'll catch up with you again soon. Yes, pleasure to have our beloved uh, colleague there, Craig Foster, join us. Um, very sad day, as I said there, uh, as we remember the great Frank Arrock and so many tributes continue to flow. Of course, you can catch them across social media and, of course, we've got an article up on the World Game um, that's detailed so much of that. I want to move on swiftly to our next guest that joins us here. Um, I won't lie, and this is no disrespect to any of our previous guests that we've had on the program today, but I've been absolutely buzzing outside of myself to get her on the show. I was so excited when I found out that she was coming back to Australia because I've always been such a massive fan of this absolute star in Australian football. It's none other than the legendary Lisa Devana. Oh. <laughs> Hey, I'll tell you, like I said, oh, oh, you know what, I'm so good and I'm so happy to see you, Legenda. Welcome back to Australia. And, of course, you had to do it in the best way humanly possible with some absolute rippage in that Melbourne derby and the goal of the week. <laughs> I'm telling you now, that has to be goal of the year. It's goal of the decade for me. It just absolutely personified your class as a footballer. I don't care what age you are. You're going to go another 10 years and I want you to go another 10 years because oh, no, you are you. absolute <laughs> You are an absolute freak of the game. But tell me, how are you feeling being back on Australian shores at the moment? Does it feel all right? Does it feel normal again? Um, normal, no, um, because it's always chopping and changing because of COVID. But um, it's different. It's a, a different role for me because, um, you know, there's a big picture now and it's the, the World Cup. And even though it's two years away, you know, I'm trying to mentor these young girls and make them understand that this is a major thing. You know, it's it's an opportunity. The doors are open for everyone, you know. Um, and so that's different. But also at the same time, I'm trying to lead by example and being an older, mature, experienced player, 
to do that <laughs> at the same time. So it's a it's a, a big a, a different a different role, but I think it's giving me a a different balance, which is different, but it's exciting. Oh, it's so exciting to see you back, Stolich. Over to you. Some questions for the great Lisa Devana. Yeah, Lisa, I just wanted to ask about the the derby against uh, City. Obviously, an incredible win for victory, 6-0. Um, how did that feel kind of, you know, obviously it'd be fantastic to win a game in such a way, but during the match because, you know, at the start it looked like it was a bit even, but you guys just steamrolled them towards the end. Did you did you feel like, okay, I can see a weakness in them? And, you know, by the way that you scored your goal, you just looked at like, no, no one can stop me. I'm going all the way. <laughs> yes. No, we we. we... <laughs> we had a game plan um, and we sort of stuck, uh, stuck to it So and it actually worked. So that was credit to Jeff um, because we've sort of playing high pressure because we've got, you know, the, the players up front. But in terms of my goal, I actually said to Jeff, look, I, I want to come off now. I like it's He goes, oh, just give me, just give me five minutes. Just give me everything you've got for five minutes. So I thought, oh, all right, here we go again. We're going to have this argument again. So literally a minute after that, <laughs> I scored the goal and that's pretty much I said, can I come off? He goes, no, I have to pick one for another 10 minutes. And I'm like blowing up on the sideline and all of them are laughing. And then I thought, and then I'm, and then I didn't put up the sign and I don't know who, and I'm running towards the line going, oh, it's going to, obviously it's me. And then I see him take off two other players. I'm like, what's going on? And and it's it's a good little, it's a good little joke. So I told him that I'm going to get a consent form. When I say off, he needs to take me off straight away. So, but, uh, yeah, no, I can think you're the only player. Most players that, you know, they get told, yeah. like I'm going to say star players, which you are, you know, they get told to come off and they're going, blowing up the coach, don't take me off. You're the only one who scores an amazing goal and goes, yep, thank you, that'll do me. I'm, I'm done right now. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I, know <laughs> I know my body as well. And, and to yeah. be fair, like I want to give the young kids a go and, and I sort of like dictate the game and like I, I didn't feel like it was that much of a threat where I felt that we were going to lose the game. So, um, but, you know, sealing that third goal, I think, was a nail on the coffin for the, for the, um, for City to, to come back. So it was a, it, it was a good, it was a good result for us. But like I said to the girls now, you know, City are a team that have a lot of pride and a lot of history and they won't mm-hmm. be taking this too lightly. So we have to be prepared just as much as we were last game because um, they'll definitely will have to make some changes and come out firing because that, that, that performance for them is not in their, in their standards. So um, it will be another good match and it might be a different match, but, you know, we know in ourselves now we've got the bit of, a bit of momentum now, so which is a really good thing as, as a player. It certainly is, and you're absolutely right about City. I mean, they got absolutely gutted at the end of last season of all of their star players, so it's very much a rebuilding phase for them. I'll tell you what, we've had so much love coming in for you already. Julie Lenton, I adore Devana, such a skillful and passionate player, always gives 100% respect. Bianca Petko, incredible player. She's killing it like Ronaldo, says Santino Mamone, one of our uh, regular viewers here. Um, You know, everyone just has so much love for you and so glad to see you back here in Australia, particularly in the W League, of course. We'll touch on um, you know, your view on the upcoming 2023 World Cup and it being awarded uh, on Australian soil. But I want to ask you about your time in Italy with Fiorentina. How was it? <laughs> um, how, how was the whole experience? How did you enjoy being in Italy and, and the overall um, kind of journey that you, you went on? Oh, I absolutely loved Italy. I loved the culture. I loved the, how they're passionate. I loved everything about it. I loved my teammates. Um, it was quite different in terms of football. Um they're very so I I felt like I actually blended in because I'm such a passionate person and I express myself in a 
in a way that some people might think is a bit too much, but some people might like. And I just I felt frightened. I love it. <laughs> so when they're blowing up, I'm like, well, this is good. I can blow up too. And, I, and it doesn't really mean anything. So, um, but sometimes, like, there was just one time um, we must have lost the game and the coach literally yelled down the roof. And all I can think of is, I wish I could grab my phone and film this and show people in Australia what what I am witnessing this because I told the girls any coach that does what he's just did, he nearly ripped off his shirt. Um, he was so angry. That's how that's how passionate he was. He was so angry, and I thought you'll lose your job straight away. But I loved it, and I love that yeah. that they they talk about their emotions and how they feel in a and like not in a constructive way, but in a in a <laughs> a passionate way. So in terms of that, I felt you know right at home, and you know. And I felt like I was a, a part of a family there. So, but then COVID hit and that was interesting. So yeah, mm-hmm. um, I didn't realize how serious it was because I don't really, I'm not a really uh, social media person. So I didn't really understand exactly how serious it was. And I thought, ah, it's just a virus. We'll just, it'll go away. Um, so um, I thought I'll just stay in Italy for a, stay a week or two and then it'll just, it'll go by. Oh, two months later, I'm locked down in in, in a, an apartment. Right. I have a psycho downstairs guy banging on the door, telling me to shut up because I'm doing my exercises in the house. I didn't even know what day it was. Some of the time, I'm having I'm eating dinner at four o'clock in the morning. It just it was just one big blur. Yeah. But you know, uh, pushed through it, so it was pretty good. Thank God. Stolich, over to you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Lisa, obviously uh, you are one of the greatest Matildas ever, 150 caps, been in the squad since 2004. How has the Matildas kind of changed over the years and the experience? Because we've kind of seen a, a huge change in women's football, and but you've been there, like a part of it the whole time. How have you seen that change? And what are, what are some of the kind of, I guess, the stories from the early days compared to now that you're like, wow, we, we've come a long way? Or maybe we haven't, I don't know. Um, yeah, look, uh, you know, it's it's a, it's different because, you know, I had people that I looked up to like Cheryl and Ish and Di and Heather Garriock and Walshie and all those players that were good good leaders, good players, good coming through. And then, um, but the, the professionalism wasn't quite there, but we had the, the heart and the passion because we're just those, when you talked about the Matildas back then, you talked about them being physical and just, you know, hard-ass players. But then... You know, they started to fade away and then the young ones started coming through and you had the Sammy Kerrs and then the Caitlin Fords and the Emily Vang, where they were technically very good. So, and then it just sort of gone from, well, we can actually play some good football now. And then it just went from, you know, every year things started to pan out to, I would say, the last last five years, I think, at the Canada World Cup when we just won the heart of Australia. We became the yep. Golden Girls that people actually fell in love with the Matilda. And not just as women that can play, like not as women athletes, but as women that can actually play really good football. You know, we didn't just go to a World Cup and made numbers and just battled through. We actually competed against the, the number one teams in the world and did it quite competitively. And I think that there won, you know, everyone was just so in love. And, and then the momentum just built from there. And... I think that gave the players a bit more um, confidence and belief because I think we lacked that a little bit because yeah. we always would always think, oh, you know, we'll just give it a go. But we came out to these games and we actually go, you know, we we can beat any team. And like I said to you, Lucy, that the game against Brazil was, you know, I look back at that game and, and it still gives me goosebumps because, 
just so much heart came into that game, getting through that quarterfinals. Um, that, that, that feeling and that memory just never goes away. And, you know, we wanted to continue to build that momentum. And, and you know, and, that, and I think that, that was the changing point, I think. You know, being the number four in the uh, in the world and then being in the US and competing, qualifying for Olympic Games, where that was the most difficult experience of my career, you know, to, to play in Asia. Asia is very hard. And to play Asian teams are even harder because they're so technical. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I think the last five years has been the biggest transition in women's football. And now I personally think the women brand is probably, without sound too sexist, it's probably more popular than the, the boys at the moment. No, you're right. Yeah, it's not sexless. It's just a straight <laughs> in fact, man, because we are in a position, lease now, where we consider, and I touched on it earlier, which is why I want to talk to you about it now, the fact that we secured the, the Women's World Cup on Australian and New Zealand soil, it's such a big deal. And I, I just, uh, you know, I remember basking in the aftermath of that and feeling like I hope people understand just how big a deal this is. This is something that so many people like, you know, of our ilk, Johnny and Les were fighting for that would have loved to have seen and now yeah. they're going to watch it from the football field in the sky. But for you I mean obviously coming back I'm sure that you factored in the fact that you know that the Women's World Cup is going to be here in Australia and that led your decision to, to to come back to the W League but what was your reaction like um all the way from Italy when you found out that we won? <laughs> it was quite funny because um I was on I was on my way back from Venice and I actually think I've got the footage and um my phone was literally dying and then as it died Ala Mastonio messaged me we won and I just screamed on the uh, on the on the on the train. So I went to uh, these four Italian girls and I said, you know, I asked them, can I have your charger? Can I have your charger? Because I wanted to, to ring up Anno Dong because I know that yeah. Anno Dong and uh, yeah. the rest of the those people that uh, were involved with it had done extremely so much hard work. So I just yeah. wanted to call her and 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 share that moment with her, and mm. I got at least five minutes of to talk to her and and it just was just like a satisfying feeling because it wasn't for me it wasn't just getting the world cup at the women's world cup it was football for australia that i i felt yeah. that everyone will be a part of and and it didn't matter if it was a boy or girl men women it was a, a, a something for sports in general so i was really excited for it and you know and and, and it's gonna make a game like now for for I'm hoping for boys and girls, but particularly for the women, you know, doors opening so there is a better pathway for them, a better gap, a, a better um, pathway for them to, to be able to go into the Matilda. So when you are in a Matilda's environment, you know, it's been a bit like the US and the Germany where, you know, any player is capable to play that role and not always depending on those the, the, the certain key players all the time, if that sort of makes sense where I'm coming at. No, it does. Are we going to see you there? You better be there, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm too old, man. We got the Olympics. We saw you go on the weekend. You're not too listen, old. You're not listen, too old. Listen, Lucy, and sorry, I didn't hear your name. Nick, Nick, Nick sorry. No, I, I didn't see your name. I didn't see your name. Sorry, I'm not being rude or anything. But I literally retired yesterday. I was in the car and I was in the car about to get to train. As you can see, I've See, Lucy, how committed I am to you. I, I've come straight from training. I haven't even changed or showered or eaten because I wanted to do this for you. So yeah, well, this nice. would work Thank better. You, would be you nice. better. You better. <laughs> anyway. You better. How much I love you. <laughs> but um, I actually was in the car and I'm like, I'm, I'm retired. I'm not going in. I'm not I'm done. I'm not. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm so sorry. No. I'm so tired. 
but then today I'm out playing and, and I'm talking to the girls and joking around. I'm like, oh, I'm back again. You've won me back yes. again. So, <laughs> yes. so I'm emotion changes all the time. So maybe tomorrow I'd, I'd be retired. Maybe Friday I'll be back again. But at the moment, I just take W League as it goes and, and just see what happens. Um, you know, I've always, now that I'm at that age, I just, you know, I just keep working hard and, and you know, I, I like to drive the young ones. If, I, if I'm having a running race or a goal competition, I want to compete with them. And then I've always got that bragging where I go, you know how old I am? You know how old I am? You should be ashamed of yourself. And then we get this. And then we get the stats from the game, and then you see my high speed meter smashing everybody, and I send it to him going, "You should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed of yourself." So, um, and they laugh, but, you know. But it's it's you know I always think that a, a good leader is by leading by example, and 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 that's what I feel like I, I can I can bring to to victory. So it's been really good. Julie Lenton wrote in, Lisa, don't go. See you in 2023. And if you want oh. another reason why you shouldn't go, Nikki, let's play that goal, man. And for people that haven't seen it, just revel in this moment. I've watched it like 50 times already. Yeah, great run forward there from Tegan Allen. Oh, look at that from Devanna. Once it runs through, so smart. Wraps around Jenna McCormick. Trusts herself for pace to beat Tori Toom. It's still Lisa Devanna. Devanna with the shot. Now she gets her just reward. Lisa Devanna, so many assists. How's your coach there on the sidelines going? And you wanted to come off. That's why I didn't take you off. <laughs> <laughs> but to, to be fair, like, I know that everyone, like, because I've got a lot of messages about it, and, like, it's a good goal. Don't, I'm not taking anything from it. But, like, I feel that that's sort of my trademark. So when I see a goal like that, I, I look at that and go, that is my strength. So I don't... Mm -hmm. I, as if I took a shot and hit it top corner, I'm like, that's a sick goal. But to everyone else, it's like, oh, that's boring. So it's just really weird when people make such a big deal out of that, that goal. I'm like, oh, man, that's just my trademark. I, I love if, you're, those if your trademark is getting the ball from half, from your own half, running the whole field and scoring, then there's no way you can ever retire. That's one of the most no, unbelievable man. trademarks no, I've no, ever no, heard. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, I'll probably have to do one, one a game and then I'll be off. But, you know, when you have Jeff Hopkins <laughs> and say, lies to you and says another 10 minutes, then <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be playing 90 minutes this weekend. Oh, man. <laughs> Lisa Devana, I, I, I could listen to you talk all day and it's why I'm going to ask you again off the back of this. I want to do a long-form chat with you because there's still so much more to dissect on, on you know, your career thus far, the experience that you've amassed. I mean, what you've done for Australian football. I love this from Vince Pearl, one of our viewers. Devana is to the Matildas what Cahill was to the Socceroos. You are an icon of our game and that transcends men's or women's. You are somebody that will be celebrated and revered for years to come. Future generations will know your name because the things that you've done in Australian football have been nothing short of remarkable. You will be there in 2023. If I have to drag you kicking and screaming, you're an absolute fun, <laughs> a legend. I'm so glad you're home and I can't wait to see more from you. Thank you for making the time to catch up with us here on the World Game today. You are the best. <laughs> no worries, guys. Anytime. Good on you. Lisa Devana, what a legend. She's just a such legend. a top chick and she's, you know, as I said, she's done so much for Australian football and, um, you know, I can't wait to see what else she can do. I still think she's got some gas in the tank, Stolich. We have to see her there at 2023.
Yeah, I, I really think so. I mean, that's what you can see um, on the field uh, during that game. She's, she still has that speed. You know, actually saying that's her trademark. But to have that speed, you know, at her age, as she's saying, that's incredible. But what I've always really liked about Lisa is she combines kind of two contrasting things, which is a very aggressive player. She's a very direct player. She's a very quick player. But she's also a very composed player when she gets in the box. Very- you know, it's so, And sometimes you don't always see that. Players who are so kind of quick and aggressive, you know, they get to the box and then they – kind of they keep going they shoot over all the time Devana shows so much composure in the box and makes the right decision you know whether it's setting up teammates or finishing just a nice calm finish and that's a trait of a really really top quality player someone who can combine that speed which you know every player wishes they had with the kind of composure that makes you an absolute killer and she's an absolutely tremendous athlete as well. I mean, you talked about her pace, but she's still in such peak physical condition, um, looking fantastic. Um, such a coup for all of us to have her back here. As I said earlier, I was so excited when I found out that she was coming home because I think it's a big year for us in the in, you know, in, in an Olympics year, which I hope still goes ahead, no thanks to COVID-19. But then looking ahead to the Women's World Cup, you know, she's not too old. Um, if King Castle can sign a contract extension <laughs> at Yokohama at 54, then she's still got another 10 years. And I'm going to say that right now i want to move on to our next news items of course the show is always blowing over time and our producers will be hanging well we'll be hanging our heads in shame afterwards when we have to explain to them why but we've had such good talent such good content on today's show but i want to quickly go over to this one and making headlines of course manchester united are top of the premier league for the first time stolich since 2013 after their win over burnley it might be a short-lived stint on top of the table but um for manchester united fans you got the sense that things were looking really grim coming into this season again under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer there wasn't that much optimism still a lot of angst around whether or not he was the right man for the job but you can't argue with how things are going at the moment can you well I don't know can you (laughs) listen Man United fans they're all today I'm seeing them all over social media some of my friends are texting me Man United we're top of the table blah blah and you know enjoy enjoy. calm down the Mariners are enjoying them being top of the table as well (laughs) is let's just look back a few months ago, I think it was maybe two months ago, when Manchester United got knocked out of the Champions League in the group stage. And, you know, all these question marks over Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and that, to me, was a failure. So Manchester United are doing well. They've put together a really good run of form, especially away from home. Um, There's a lot of, uh, you know, real grit and determination um, in that squad, uh, and that's very impressive. They they often go down, but they come back, so, so that's great. I personally think, and, you know, Manchester United fans, you know, you can hold my feet to the fire if, if I'm proven wrong, but I personally think that both Liverpool and Manchester City will go above them by the end of the season. Oh, look, I as a Liverpool fan am reveling in that um, prediction, of course. I'd love mm. to see that happen. But, you know, I think one of the greatest disappointments for me so far this season, it's just slightly switching gears in the Premier League, has been Chelsea. The amount of money that they've spent, the squad depth that they have, um, I think that they should be doing a hell of a lot better than what they are. And I don't know how much longer Frank Lampard is going to be able to buy into this thing of, oh, it takes time, it takes time. Mm. You're spending that amount of cash and you've got that good a talent. Um, I feel like you should be doing a hell of a lot better than what you are. And Manchester United fans, if it wasn't for Bruno Fernand, I don't know that you'd be where you are right now because he has been an absolute killer for that team and a lifesaver in many respects, Stolich. Yeah, I mean, there's been some interesting, uh, I think Eric Bailly coming back into the team has been very good for Manchester United. Um, it was good to see. I mean, I personally am a big fan of Paul Pogba and I think we haven't seen the best of him at Manchester United, so it was good to see him score um, this morning. But, you know, Manchester United fans, enjoy it. 
you know, you, you are in a much better position than you were a few years ago. That's for sure. Um, but don't be, you know, popping any champagne corks just yet. All right. No champagne for Manchester United fans just yet. Let's move on, please, to Aussies abroad. There's mm. a hell of a lot of action going on over there. Uh, Jordan Murray doing fabulously for his side in the Indian Super League, scoring goals for fun and hot on the heels of former A-League players Roy Krishna and Adam LaFondra as well. Uh, Jackson Irvine finally, after months and months and months without a football club, he's finally signed for Hibernian. Uh, Sam Kerr, again, she's been on song for Chelsea, providing two assists for the amazing Kirby, who also scored, uh, I think it was a hat-trick in that game, Mark, or four goals, I think, Kirby, correct me if I'm wrong. City, of course. Um, now, this one's an interesting one. They are likely to recall Daniel Arzani and loan him out again, and Karacic is off to Italy. Stolic, mm. take it away uh, on what jumped out at you the most. Well, for me, actually, well, Jackson Irvine signing for Hibernian is great news. Oh. I mean, it's great news that he's finally just getting a team because it was a long, long time out. Um, you know, he was doing well at Hull. I think it was captaining the side and certain things. He was, you know, they, they were really struggling, but he personally was doing well. So it's good to see him back. Um, obviously, at Hibs, he's going to be uh, alongside Martin Boyle, uh, which is going to be good. Mm -hmm. So that would be interesting. The Australian connection, if you can consider Martin Boyle uh, an Australian, he does play for the Socceroos at least. Well, Graham Arnold consider him, <laughs> considers him an Australian. So let's Listen, call him one. <laughs> he was very good when he came out here and played. So that that's good. Um, obviously, Daniel Arzani, um, he's still he's still my big hope for Australian football. You know, I, I really, really loved what I saw in the small parts that I've seen of him. Um, so hopefully he can find somewhere where he can play. This is also one of the issues of going on loan so often, you know, and I think maybe should be a bit of a warning to players who go on loan. The problem with going on loan to a team like Manchester City is Manchester City is such a big team that they – the, the players that they have in and they send straight out on loan, you know, we know that they're not really developing them for the first team. They're developing them to do what they did with like Aaron Moy, which is, you know, sell them to Huddersfield and then that Huddersfield can either buy them or be sold on to someone like Brighton. So it's, it's more of a money-making thing. The problem with that is when clubs loan you in, they might not necessarily value as much as they value their own players because they think, well, if we put you in the team for, let's say, 38 games and you play really well and then you just leave at the end of the season and we don't get to sell you, we'd rather play the players that are contracted to us and then we can either keep them next year or make money on them for selling. So it's always a bit of a risk. Uh, when you do these loan moves. Play, but if that player is going to make an impact for that particular club that they're on loan to, then it is in the club's best interest to be playing them regularly, don't you think? For sure. But if if the choice between a contracted player and a loan player, I think they're always going to go for the contracted player. So that's just... But who the lone player is. That's yeah. my argument yeah. on that. Because if they're a quality footballer, which I think Daniel Arzani is, no then he's going to be in your interest. And as you said, those small glimmers that you have seen of him have mm. been enough to, to keep you clinging on to hope. I'm going to be mm. a bit controversial and say I'm not clinging on to much of that hope anymore. I'm mm. a bit concerned about his career as it stands because he hasn't been able to get regular game time for some time. We know in Scotland he had a rough time in Celtic, of course, no thanks to injury. But now he's also fallen out of favour uh, at his current club and it looks like that Manchester City are going to loan him out again. Um, I'm, I'm not liking the way that this is panning out for this youngster's career. The whole objective is for him to get some game time and to be playing regular football because we've loved his quality in patches, but he's not producing that at a consistent level. So um, watch this space because I'm a little bit concerned for Daniel Arzani's career, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's talk. I mean, there's people just chatting that, you know, maybe they'll look to loan him back to Melbourne City or something like that. 
I would personally prefer that he still stays in Europe. I think he is mm-hmm. of that quality and he needs to be up against that. And there are just more games in Europe, which means there's more opportunities to show what we've got. So I'd like to see him stay there. Although if he does come to the A-League, then, you know, obviously that'd be exciting and I'd love to watch him play and, and all kinds of things. Uh, Musi Longo, one of our regular fans here on the World Game Live, Arzani needs to return home for game time and to build confidence. I agree with you in the sense that he needs to build confidence, but that only comes from game time. And does that necessarily mean that he has to come back to Australia? I'm not convinced of that fact. I agree with you, Stolich. I think he needs to stay over there. Uh, Justin Parker, not often that people agree with me, but I'm happy to take it. That's why I'll throw the damn comment. I agree, Lucy. What's the point of bringing in an outside payer and paying a player's loan wages if you're not planning to play him? Again, I think it... You know, I'm in two minds about it because I agree with what you're saying, Solich, but then I also think that if you are bringing in a lone player, it is because you think and you expect that they're going to make an impact for your side in that particular season. But um, it is an Can I say, one. I like what yeah. Ben Johnson is saying to Girona in Spanish second division. Uh, City's sister club. Yes, they I think that would be a good move. Uh, I think sense, wouldn't it, Stolich? I think Daniel Azani would thrive in Spain, and I think um, you know with the coaching that's usually at Girona. I'm not sure who's in charge at the moment, but that would be, um, I think, a very good move if he could get. And um, just quickly, another talking point, of course, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with Matty Ryan, Ivan Stragan. Mm. Matt Ryan being shut out of Brighton looks like he's leaving the Premier League in Jan or end of season. I think this is one of those situations where, yes, he has been shut out by Potter, and it's very clear because Potter came out publicly and said he's free to go when he likes, um, which is really sad. It's a sad, sad state of affairs for Matty Ryan. I feel like everything that he's done for that club, he's he's been through, you know, several graphs, uh, you know, trying to stay alive in the Premier League. He was promoted with them. I, I just think... I think it would be a very sad state of affairs to see him iced out of the club in the way that he is and for his journey with uh, Brighton Hove Albion to end in this way. Karacic to Italy is also an interesting one because he could be another hope for us going forward in the Socceroos side. Stolich. Yeah, I mean, I think um, from what I've seen, he's been doing quite well in uh, Croatia. He's moving to Brescia in Serie B. I think they're about 11th. Uh, <laughs> former former team, Brescia of uh, Balotelli, former team of Pirlo, former team of Baggio. Um, so, you know, listen. Big pedigree. There's a lot of there's a lot of football intelligence. You go there, they're going to teach you exactly how to play football. So I think he should probably be brought back into the fold of the Socceroos. Um, whenever we next play a game, who knows? Maybe 2025 or something. But well, um, month, right? And as it stands, those qualifiers are still scheduled. But you're you're not hopeful. And look what's happening around the world. I mean, we're very lucky here in Australia, but it's ridiculous. I, I'm clinging on to hope that they'll be able to finish the leagues in Europe because it seems like they're having to postpone games every day. The Olympics uh, is meant to be in, what, six months from now, or less than six months from now. Japan, uh, Tokyo has just gone into a Euro. one-month lockdown. Yeah, Euro. Euros, Co- Copper America. There's all these things that, you know, we're hoping to happen in football. We're desperately happening in football. And as the calendar starts backing up, there's so much football that needs to be played. I don't know. Uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be tough, but yeah, I, I don't know when the soccer is next gonna play. Yeah, it's a really tough one, that one. Bad news, good news. Let's move on to the final segment of the show. As I've said before, we're running over time. We continue to do it every week. To my producers, <laughs> I promise we're trying to be better. But when it comes to the beautiful game, baby, you can't you can't shut us up. You can't stop us. No. All right, I mean, it's a let us know in the comments. You want a bit of extended time. Sometimes games go into extra time, you know. I mean, I didn't see the final, but River Palmeiras today, I think that went to about 15 minutes of extra time. So, they love uh, yes. their time in South America, don't they? Far out. Yeah. That stuff will drive you crazy. Bad news. What is your bad news for this week and what is your good news? Share them with us now. We want to hear them. Mm. Let's start off on a bad note with your bad news. 
My bad news uh, this week is the Sydney Derby is happening this weekend, which I'm very excited about, but the bad news is only going to be 25% capacity. And, you know, maybe in the grand scheme of things, that's that's a good thing that we can at least have, I think, it's like 20,000 people in an 80,000-seater stadium because they're playing at um, Stadium Australia. I don't know what it's called now, Telstra or whatever they call it. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's changed name so many times, A and Z, blah, blah. Australia's the Olympic Stadium where Kathy Freeman won the 400. That's the stadium they're playing in where Johnny Aloisi <laughs> scored the penalty. Um, but, it's yeah, it's just unfortunate. To me, that is actually, in my opinion, it's the best atmosphere that you get in Australian sport every year is the Sydney Derby. Um, I've been to heaps of them. I loved the one at Bank West last year, full stadium. It was my favourite moment yeah. of the whole season. And um, I think it's just a bit of a shame that we're not, you know, for the fans and for the players and for the people watching on TV, that we're not going to get that full stadium atmospheric experience. Mm, it's a real shame, isn't it? Because that's what we love about the Sydney Derby. It is yeah. the, the atmosphere, the crowd, the roaring, the raring to go, um, you know, that really makes it sing. Um, Matthew M. Papas, here's bad news for the week. Bad news, 11 New South Wales associations are revolting against football New South Wales in regards to fee payments. Not a good look. Not a good look at all, Matthew. Couldn't agree more. We know that it's been a contentious situation when it comes to member federations, and I know that quite a number of clubs are hot on the heels of football New South Wales over this particular issue, but here that now 11 New South Wales associations are potentially revolting. Um, watch that space. Um, Matthew, if you want to file a story for us on that one, um, we'll give you our TWU <laughs> for all of the tips. Uh, my bad news for the week, of course, is it's like what so many have expressed here uh, and Hassan Bertan, one of our regular viewers here on the World Game. Bad news, Frank Arrock couldn't agree more. Um, really sad to wake up to that, of course. You know, he's 88 years of age, uh, somebody that's contributed so much to Australian football, but to die from illness, um, you know, in his in his home country of Serbia was was really quite heartbreaking to hear. Um, so many tributes flowing for him. Of course, head to our, our World Game website to see so many of them. Um, and, and on behalf of everybody here at the World Game, our condolences are with him and his family. Of course, he is still survived by uh, his two daughters, I believe. Um, I hope I'm correct on that one. Um, so we hope that they'll able to keep his memory alive because we certainly know that here in Australia we'll continue to do the same. Um, what is your good news for the week? Let's end on a positive note. Stolich. My good news. Guess who's back? Back, back, and again, again, again. Messi's back, 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 scoring all the time. Is it it too late to pull this one up, actually? Where did I see this awesome comment from somebody? Which was it? You um, find the comment? I'll tell you what, you don't need to find. You don't need to find where Messi's talent. Or did you delete it? Did you delete it? I didn't delete nothing. I didn't delete anything. Listen, Messi's back. Messi's scoring. Messi looks happy. Vass is killing it again. Messi is looking at Pedri like he used to look at him yesterday and he's saying, I found the one. Pedri's setting him up. Messi's looking good. And the good news, guys, is that Messi is not only back for Barcelona, but Barcelona are back on SBS tomorrow. (laughs) Who's this guy? Liverpool, man, we what he lost three games in a row. He's one of my he's one of my own. Alex Sivkarovsky, also one of our regular viewers. So you watch your fun stolich and you show some respect to our regular viewers. Good news, Barcelona going bankrupt. Look, all jokes aside, what I will say is it's nice to see Messi back at his best. He's in the running again for the Pichichi. Although, might I say that if Ronaldo was still in the league, would we still be talking about it in the same vein? I don't know. They to to me, they were like what Batman and the Joker were to each other which one you want to say is who it's up to you but they needed one another they needed one another so 
You know, well, is it that great an effort if if Messi's winning the Pachichi anymore? I don't know. I don't know. Am I, I being I, controversial? I, no? I mean, he just just goals, assists every game. Doesn't matter. Does it in Champions League? It's all good. It's all good. But the good news is that you can watch Barcelona tomorrow morning uh, on SPS on demand. Uh, Real Sociedad. Check our website. Real Sociedad Barcelona at seven a.m. So you can watch Messi. You can watch Pedri. You can watch Dembele. There's all, there's so many good players to watch. De Jong is good. It's all good. Even Griezmann's going okay. You know, as long as Coutinho stays away, all good. Um, um, on, in the Supercopa de España, of course, we're yes. delighted. Very SBS for us to be showing these matches. I absolutely love it. Check your local guides for details. Friday morning, Real Madrid uh, Athletic Bilbao, which is going to be a mm-hmm. super, super game. Uh, hopefully Bilbao smash them. But uh, if they don't and, you know, it happens to be a Barca-Real final, then we'll have an El Clasico final, which will be on the Monday morning. I'm super, super, super excited for all these games. Make sure you tune in. Support football and SBS. And, uh, yeah, we'll bring you all that stuff. It's going to be so great. So tomorrow, uh, Friday and Monday morning. Ivan Sragan, again, our top viewer, one of our top viewers here on the World Game Live. Good news. Three Matilda shortlisted for Asian Player of the Year, Ford, Kerr and Carpenter. Absolutely love that from you, Ivan, and love that uh, because, you know, our players, they've just been absolute stars and, and really shining for us abroad in their respective leagues there. Of course, we know that Ford and Kerr in the Women's Super League and, of course, Carpenter, an absolute star for Lyon since Lucy Bronze left. Um, you know, I think it's really opened up an opportunity for her and she's certainly shining and doing great things for Lyon. Great to see Anybody else got some good news or bad news? My good news for the week. Ah, yes. Go on then. No, no. I just wanted to point out um, uh, one of our colleagues is uh, obviously not doing his work. Jorge Jorge Laza. Who is Messi? (laughs) Quien es Colo Colo? And where are they? Where are they? Jorge? Anyone want to know? Jorge Laza is a massive, massive Colo Colo fan. And if you just want to Google where Colo Colo is on the table right now, the great Colo Colo, let me tell you, it's not in the top 10. It's not even in the top, I think, 16. It's right down there in the relegation. So thank you for that, Jorge. Bad news is Colo Colo every week. That's what bad news is. Oh, come on, God, I could listen to this banter all day. Um, I'll tell you what my good news is, is that the great Gennaro Gattuso is back at his best. I was toying between two good newses, but I kind of mentioned one of them earlier on in that King Castle has signed, um, you know, an extension on his contract at yeah, Yokohama right. at age 54. Incredible stuff. I mean, you know, he's an absolute icon in Japanese football. They absolutely love him. I think he only made, though, like a total of four appearances for them last season. So when I was chatting to uh, Corey actually about he said, oh, he's got to have something in his contract. Track. There's got to be politics involved. Why are they still hanging on to this 54-year-old and not giving a youngster an opportunity? I said, it's the King Kazu. It's the legend of Japanese yeah, yeah. football. You don't you just push him it. to the side. And if you are going to push him to the side, make sure that he's got a Zimmer frame waiting for him. But um, Gennaro <laughs> Gattuso, I love this. And it's in my good news because I love it when he's back at his best and giving mm-hmm. us these brilliant one-liners. So he basically came out and said that Napoli cannot always be beautiful like Hollywood actor Brad Pitt as he urged his side to be ugly like him. And I'm going to read you out his exact quote. Napoli want to always be beautiful, but sometimes being a bit ugly is a good thing. You can't always be Brad Pitt with blonde hair and blue eyes. Sometimes you have to be a bit ugly like me. I look worse than usual now as I'm all puffed up due to the cortisone shots, but I feel Uh, I mean, you can see why Lisa was saying how much she loved Italy. You can see why she fitted in there. It's just Uh, southern Europe. It's it's one of the best places on earth. 
Oh, man, we've all got to go back there. These crazy, passionate wogs that we all are, and I can say that because I am one, we all belong back in Italy or where they'll accept our craziness and our passion because that's where we fit in the most. Santino Mamone, Gattuso is Calabrese. We love our Calabreses, and we love you, Santino Mamone. We love all of our regular viewers here on the World Game Live. What a fun show it's been. If you missed out on any of it, of course, you can catch it on demand later on. Um, of course, we had the pleasure, and we'll give another thanks to our special guests on the program today, James Johnson, who joined us, Football Australia Chief Executive Officer, as well as Chief Executive Officer of the PFA, Bo Bush. They came to speak to us about the domestic Australian transfer system that they're looking to implement off the back of the news that Football Australia has issued a white paper, which is in talks now in a consultation phase with a host of clubs and various stakeholders across the country. It's great to see uh, my beloved colleague, Craig Foster, who came and gave a wonderful reflection uh, and a walk down memory lane of the great Frank Adock, who we sadly bid farewell to, 88 years of age, passed away from illness. Our thoughts with everyone on Frank Adock's side and the legendary Lisa Devani. You've got to go back and catch this interview in case you missed it because she's an absolute star, a real gun in Australian football and still has so much to offer. I'm going to be chasing a, a more in-depth and, and lengthy discussion with her because I think, uh, you know, there's so much that's gone on in football over the last couple of years. It'd be great to have her insight and her experience is absolutely invaluable. Solich, of course, we're absolutely delighted to be broadcasting uh, the uh, Supercopa de España. Very excited mm. to have all back on SBS. Very excited to see you, my friend, every week. You're such an outstanding addition to this World Game live show. Of course, for all the stories that we have discussed, head to the World Game website. It is your one-stop shop and your destination to find out all things football. Justin Parker, I tell you what, someone someone actually, Ari Brisbane gave you stick about your hair earlier on. Shame on you, Ari. That's negativity that we don't need because Justin Parker has incredible hair. Um, but thank you for stopping by, guys. Hassan Bertan, great show, guys, like always. We love seeing our regular viewers. Make sure you tune in every week. We'll have another star-studded Guest list for you next Wednesday from 1 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time, but on half of myself, Solich, and the entire team at the World Game. It's goodbye for now. Ciao, and we'll see you again very soon.